0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar panel. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now.
1: The new phase we're going into uh, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
0: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 18th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Milder. This is part two of our three-hour conversation with Michael Liebreich, an energy expert who is the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and Dr. Nico Bauer, an integrated assessment modeler with the Potsdam Institute. This conversation builds on our previous episodes about the way that the climate models of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, are constructed and what they mean. In this episode, we attempt to find some common ground to help us bridge a persistent gap between several different communities, including climate modelers, energy modelers, and integrated assessment modelers. The conversation in this episode picks up right where it left off in episode 116, so be sure to listen to that episode first in order to understand the context of what you are about to hear. Then, in the news segment of this episode, we'll observe an historic step for France's nuclear power fleet, we'll mark the beginning of the end for oil sands projects in Canada, we'll brace for a surge in unsubsidized wind and solar project construction in the UK, we'll note another historic milestone for utilities as compared with the oil and gas sector, and we'll check out Volkswagen's huge new investment into electric vehicles. But first, the second part of our conversation with Michael Liebreich and Nico Bauer recorded February 10th, 2020. Michael?
1: Yeah, so I think that I I see that and I do see, okay, we look at, you know, Chris, you and I, we look at not edge cases, but kind of the leading edge where we say, okay, if you look at, for instance, delivery vehicles in a European city, It's pretty clear that they all ought to be electric, partly because of the combination of battery costs and mileage, also because of the externality costs of air pollution and so on and so on. So we look at buses the same and it's going to just ripple through. But it is going to take, you know, even the, the very aggressive uptake scenarios of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, you know, the old team that I created, it is still one third of the fleet to be electric, of the vehicle fleet to be electric by 2040. It's not 100% by any means, and that's to do with various lags in the system. And if you don't like that, then I think you've got to have some additional policy to speed that up. What I'm bothered by, listening to this though, is I spend my time railing against IEA, EIA, BP Shell for being (laughs) pessimistic. I just don't think that their sort of base case scenarios They are transition scenarios, but they're very slow transition scenarios that get you to where you want to be, maybe 2070, but maybe not even and so on. And yet, within the sort of RCPs and now the SSPs, what we're looking at is those scenarios by what I would consider to be very conservative modeling groups – they would be regarded as the absolute outside edge of optimistic that's coming out of the policy scenarios, not the no policy, not the hellaciously unlikely baselines. We're talking about the actual mitigation scenarios that there are almost none that even bracket IEA or Shell or BP or not even Aramco or OPEC or whatever. And I just don't understand how a set of scenarios that are sort of all more pessimistic than even the ones I consider to be pessimistic from the industry, how are we supposed to engage? How am I supposed to go to an investor and say, you know, hey, look at this, this is what the world might look like. I mean, we actually think it'll look very different, but this is the big report that everybody's talking about. How do I use this pessimistic scenario set, which ranges from hellaciously unlikely to, maybe some of it's only slightly
2: unlikely, but it's all pessimistic,
1: you know, pretty much every single scenario.
2: I have a hard time to replicate your complaint, to be honest. Have you uh, looked at this analysis that my colleagues did on the expansion of renewables?
1: This is not just about renewables. This is about, you know, if you look at some great charts – Glenn and Zeke Housefather have done, and Justin as well, looking at the emissions pathways of even something like the IEA's scenarios compared to the various RCPs, which, although they don't have the SSPs behind them, they are nevertheless very similar emissions scenarios. And the IEAs are right down there, sort of bounce around the bottom of the funnel of different scenario options that are being produced by
2: the IAMs. Mm-hmm. No, I have not looked at that one, to be honest. But what I think we would need to confront the data we are talking about with each other because I would not say that the scenarios, I'm not now talking about the SSPs as such, but the scenarios in the overall literature is biased in that way. And what you're talking about, a low carbon energy transition where you have...
1: No, no, no. I'm talking about IEA core scenarios, the current policies and, and then the stated policies, which is essentially very similar to the NDCs. What we've got is those scenarios. Chris, you know the charts that I'm meaning. The ones where IEA and everybody is sort of tootling along below the funnel is the coal output. The overall emissions are basically tracking kind of 4.5, but the coal use is almost off-screen relative to the scenario set that is coming out of the SSP and the RCP process.
2: It is difficult to make this comparison now for me because I'm not exactly knowing what you're talking about. Sorry. But (laughs) I think we are talking about different things and the scenarios that we are developing are based on production assumptions for fossil fuels. They are based on trading costs and assumptions on how to use the different energy carriers. And I would not assume it is very probable that we phase out coal just without directed policies, be it carbon pricing or be it deliberate call phase-out policies. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, so I've got in front of me now, the IEA projections essentially track SSP2 4.5. Yeah,
2: so the middle the, of the that's road... That's the IEA, which yeah. we regard yeah. as
1: being, you know, yeah. always traditionally pessimistic, if you look at the history.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in a recent article that Justin Ritchie and Zeke Hausfather did, and Zeke was our guest in episode 40, showed basically that. It showed that in the two main warming scenarios from IEA, the central estimate for temperature increase by 2100 is 2.7 to 2.9 degrees C. So that's more or less RCP 4.5, right? Yeah. So a bit higher than the scenario based on burning all fossil fuel reserves, but in the same neighborhood. And
1: It's not a coal phase-out scenario. That's a central yeah. scenario. No. And I think to me it raises the question of why have these two worlds of – sort of IEA, EIA, BP, Shell, Equinor, DNVGL, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, why are we coming up with answers that are so far from the IAMs? I mean, so far.
0: And that's actually a question that we discussed with Kingsmill Bond back in episode 108. We're talking about, will energy transition be rapid or gradual? All the agencies and entities that you just mentioned see gradual transitions. Whereas you and I, again, are looking at these much more current factors, much more recent data, and much more recent information on cost trends in particular, and seeing that energy transition will be much more rapid than any of these agencies forecast. And I think that is getting into this point that Nico just mentioned, is that we're actually looking at different things. And I would love to see the assumptions in the kind of models that Nico is talking about opened up. I would love to see a way for those of us that are looking at very recent data and trends in energy transition have an opportunity to inform those models or to put another scenario on the table in some way, especially, again, toward the ambition of making sure that the SSPs in the IPCC 6th assessment are... At least more realistic? How do we make sure that AR6 is robust, that it does not de facto position RCP 8.5 as likely or business as usual, and that we're actually giving non experts in this world a more comprehensible way to understand what the future may hold?
2: May I just make a remark here? So, my first expertise. And the stuff with which I'm dealing all day long is not the near-term policies and very near-term development. We have a colleague here who is looking at this in particular. We have a project on that that also combines the global integrated assessment models with a national energy sector modelers to confront what is the scenarios and the assumptions that we are using, what is it, what they are using. And to bring that together on a national level, for example, India, but also other countries. I am not the best partner to discuss these kind of issues. Okay. But I would like to give Michael a cordial invitation to discuss with my colleague on exactly these matters. And I can connect the two of you.
1: That's very kind. And I mean, certainly some kind of a delegation <laughs> needs to be welcomed. And we need to get these two groups together and make sure that, how can I put it, that we're using the most up-to-date cost data. And behind all of this, there is this question, which we sort of left early on, of credibility. And, you know, I have sort of poked a bit of fun and talked about hellaciously unlikely and so on. But the problem we've got, if we don't address this, I come back to AR6 and I come back to my worry about when that is published in 2022. If it makes the same mistakes as AR5 and if it draws on work, which positions RCP 8.5 as business as usual, of which there are thousands of papers. And if it leads to more work that positions SSP 8.5 as business as usual, it is going to come under unbelievably sustained attack, not from me, I'm not the issue. I'm in good faith. I'm trying to sort this stuff out. But it's going to come under attack from people who really, really don't want to take action on climate. And they're going to look at it and say, this is so easy to attack because we have this incredibly implausible baseline, which everybody's talking about as business as usual. And it's so easy to discredit. It's so easy. And we've already got It's already happening. We already have former Saudi negotiators. We already have the Andrew Wheeler, the chair of the EPA, the administrator of the EPA in the US. They've already got this stuff in their sights. It's not because of RCP 8.5 is bollocks that they've suddenly woken up to looking at the scenarios. They know this stuff. And I'm really worried that if we don't course correct while the drafting is still happening of AR6 that with the best beautifully designed mechanism of SSPs and SSP5 that Niko is delivering if it isn't really carefully deployed and if it doesn't draw on best current knowledge my heart sinks at the thought because it's going to be it's going to be horrible it's going to be ugly it's going to be another climate gate frankly
0: I'm also very concerned about that Michael I'm concerned about the entire edifice of climate modeling here getting just a giant black eye and then being dismissed without understanding the general public in particular, but also policymakers understanding the important nuances right. here. And I think the communications problem that we've seen in the journalistic community kind of highlights oh, uh, that, right? Because they've sort of uh, defaulted toward Twitter, this I worst mean- case
1: just look at the storm of outrage because I just said you know RCP 8.5 is not plausible it's like yes it is and okay it's not plausible but we're going to do it anyway and well there's going to be these feedbacks and then you say well actually they're not going to hit this century and this kind of burning desire of so many people to hold on to this sort of doomer scenario really shocked me. To be honest, I thought people would be like, whoa, my eyes are being opened. Let's fix this for AR6. That's yeah. not the reaction I got yeah. from a lot of people and some very eminent people. That was the scariest thing. Some very eminent
2: people, very eminent climate hmm. scientists and modelers. If I just could make a remark on that. I do not perceive my job to now sell SSP5. My job... (laughs) No, really. No, I understand. I understand. It would be a tough job. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I can defend it. I can say, what are the assumptions? And I would say, this is not implausible. I know that you think it is implausible. Here, we have different opinions. We have a different mission. Mine is a scientific one. Your is, I would say, an advocate. Sorry,
1: Chris, I'm just going to jump in there. I'm not an advocate. That's one thing. But also plausible, a 10x growth in the coal industry in a world where we know what's going to happen to sea level rise. We know what's going to happen to the systems that sustain the biosphere and the economy. And yet, you know, it's like amazing. There's this kind of dystopian vision of everything going wrong. But there'll be this coal industry. I know it. It's plausible. The trains of coal will still be running, you know, raised on tracks two meters above the sea level. And so, on. Come on. I mean, it isn't plausible. It really isn't. I'm afraid. We're going to disagree on that one, I think.
2: But now you are raising concerns that go into a direction that are... Not very uh, serious, yeah. I really, you are now.
1: <laughs> really, but I mean, these are just <sighs> endogenous feedbacks within the system that you're proposing is
2: plausible, and I'm not seeing it. The, look, Michael, this is the kind of discussion that I did not want to have. I'm sorry. Please. Um, the thing that I want to communicate now is: yes, we have a communications problem. Yes, there is some misconceptions and yes, we should make a better communication. Now, that was a lot of different stuff. So regarding the AR6, there is a lot of discussions going on within the IPCC. I'm not part of that, who are discussing the use of scenarios. There is also the question on near-term emission scenarios that is surely going to be a part of the IPCC assessment report. I'm not an author. I don't know what is going on there because I'm not part of the process. So regarding the critique that comes from different angles and the way some people are kind of defending and you say oh this is a very dysfunctional defense. A defense that leads to an own goal basically. I tried to make this point earlier on the use of the RCP 8.5 and now the SSP 5 baseline scenario. First what these people are interested in is what is the consequence for the climate system as a whole and the impacts at different temperature levels. And since they want to look at a broad range of temperature levels, they take the RCP8.5 and now the SSP5 baseline scenario in order to feed this into their climate models and into their impact models. The question that they want to answer, basically, is what are the impacts at different temperature levels? This approach is very simple. It is the simplest that you can imagine. It is based on the assumption that the time dimension is not relevant. So it is only important at what temperature, am I? And this determines then the impacts. This ignores path dependencies and inertias. Sure. Now these projects that are running, they also ask the different researchers to look and to uh, submit other scenarios. For example, there's the Scenario MIP project. It's a very large project of the climate modeling community. And they go through the different levels of forcings. In the easy MIP, and this is already published, the protocol of the scenario MIP is published and the SSP5 baseline scenario is one. But only one of the scenarios. They also have the 4.5, they have the 6.0, they have the 7.0. That is part of their protocol. And then You have the EasyMap project, for example, that looks into the different impact categories. And they also ask their different teams, what are the consequences of more intermediate scenarios? And from a research perspective, it is important and interesting to know what are the dynamic effects that we have to consider There is already some research going on and the models of some systems indicate that there is not so much path dependency. This is, for example, hydrological cycles and others are much more path dependent where the temperature trajectory really, really makes the difference. And this is, for example, ice shields they react on very very long timescales and therefore the temperature trajectory is indeed important not only the temperature of the day of the year so you will see and my expectation is that in the upcoming sixth assessment report you will not see a high versus low scenario comparison You will see gradual variations between the different levels. And I would also be wondering very much if there is going to be a labeling that the SSP 5, 8.5 scenario is the business as usual or the most likely or the most plausible. I would not expect this. And regarding... My interest as a researcher, I am very interested in what the future might bring. And the problem is I cannot exclude the different high emission scenarios. I can tell you what we did in preparation of the SSPs. We looked into a lot of different data sets of fossil fuels. And we even wrote a paper on our assumptions that we used in the Remind Magpie model for fossil fuel availability. You can look up that paper and look for the assumptions and ask whether this is ridiculous or should be rejected. And one of the big problems that we have is that the databases on fossil fuels, it allows for these high assumptions. It allows that we can make the assumptions that there is these amounts of fossil fuels and that they are so cheap that they can fuel economic development. This is what we did at the time when we developed the SSPs. And by the way, there's also the worst case scenario issue. And the worst case is not necessarily the SSP uh, point five. 8.5. This is not necessarily the worst case. Since the SSP3, the regional rivalry scenario, has the high challenges to adaptation also, a lower temperature can lead to more severe consequences because of socio-economic conditions. If you are bad in adaptation and you are badly prepared, for climate change, then you could even see stronger impacts and stronger consequences for the socioeconomic system than in the SSP 5, 8.5 scenario. So there's a very high emission scenario. It is not necessary that the high emission scenario is the worst case when you factor in the climate impacts. That may sound a little strange, but imagine... A storm hits a developing country that is poor, that usually has a higher impact than if a somewhat stronger storm hits a rich country. This is a simple comparison to fill this abstract argument with some substance.
0: You know, it's very difficult to pull all these different threads together, obviously. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yes. three smart guys like us are totally totally to you so agree. much. You know, I think the debate on Twitter and elsewhere about RCPA point five, but also about these scenarios and whether or not they comport with what's happening in energy transition or with what could happen given available data on fossil fuel resources and so on. It just really serves for me to highlight that different people see the IPCC framework and the greenhouse gas concentration scenarios in different ways, depending on their objectives. And I think I'm seeing at least three different constituencies represented in these debates. I see the climate modelers, which Nico has already explained to us is actually three different groups. There's the <laughs> there's the the IM modelers, and then the climate modelers, and then there's the impact modelers, right? There's the energy analysts, and then there's the worried activists who I think are mostly interested in applying this science to influence policy. And I think the climate modelers and the IM modelers like Nico are very interested in ensuring that their scenarios represent the full range of all possible futures and that they fit together in some sort of coherent way and that they have a standardized tool set to calibrate and test across these different models. But then they're going to just sort of leave it at that. Whereas energy analysts like Michael and me are interested in making sure that the emissions implied in these scenarios line up with some outlook for energy that we would recognize as being plausible. And we want to see at least some scenarios that reflect the progress that we're already making in energy transition, which is already, I think, really quite dramatic. And I do not think that any of the existing scenarios currently do that, although I'm glad to hear that through this MIP modeling that you mentioned, Nico, that that is starting to happen. But the worried activists don't even seem particularly concerned about any of this. They're not concerned about the integrity of the IPCC framework as the climate modelers are, nor are they concerned about whether it comports with a reasonable model of energy consumption as the energy analysts are. Rather, I think they just really want to make the strongest possible case for taking action on climate, which is, I think you know, the source of a lot of the pushback that you saw, Michael. They are mainly interested in the political application of these scenarios, not whether the scenarios are standing on solid scientific ground. And so they think that all this discussion about RCP 8.5 is just a distraction or worse, that critiquing it amounts to taking away the strongest tool they have, and that doing so will hurt efforts to motivate action on climate, by making people complacent about climate change or by playing into the hands of climate change deniers. So as I see it, their concerns mostly have to do with messaging and posturing and politics, which is actually quite different from the concerns that climate modelers or or energy analysts have. And, you know, maybe there's even a fourth group here, which I would call the worried sick, who are convinced that everything is going to be much worse than we thought, for whatever reason, and who are very worried about these feedback loops that might intensify warming in the future, which they see as sort of this big question mark hanging over everything. And so, they've got this massive sense of dread, and they oppose any argument that doesn't lead us to a worst-case scenario that maps to that sense of dread. So, in my estimation, while a lot of these debates were on the surface nominally about whether RCP 8.5 is a valid or useful scenario or not, what they really showed us is that these different constituencies actually have very different objectives. And the views that they expressed about RCP 8.5 were simply proxies. They were reflective of how well it served their purposes. So how do we bridge this gap between these tribal groups and their different objectives? Can we? Should we even try? Michael, what do you think about that? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year, or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month, and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In an acceleration of its plan to shut down nuclear plants deemed to be unsafe to continue operating, France shut down one of two reactors at its oldest nuclear power plant on February 22nd. The other unit at the 43-year-old Fessenheim plant will be shut down on June 30th. French Energy Minister Elizabeth Bourne called the shutdown an historic step, as it is the first of France's 58 nuclear reactors to be permanently shut down. France gets about 75% of its electricity from nuclear plants, But many are aging, and the country has set a target to reduce its share of nuclear power on its system to 50% by 2035, and to build more renewable power to replace it. The closure of the Fessenheim plant, located along the Rhine River near France's eastern border with Germany and Switzerland, has long been sought by Germans who are concerned about the risks of continuing to operate the plant. Among other things, Fessenheim was one of four nuclear plants forced to shut down in 2018 to avoid overheating the rivers used to cool the plant, which could kill large numbers of fish. Germany currently has six remaining nuclear power plants still operating, all of which are scheduled to be shut down by 2022. Item 2. The era of big oil sands mining in Canada may be coming to an end as well. In late February, Tech Resources announced that it was canceling its $20 billion frontier project in northern Alberta, citing unfavorable economics for the project, as well as the growing debate about continuing to pursue oil sands production while pressure to take action. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com, and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.